0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. From the time we first enter the world to the moment we read or listen to the morning news, we're trying to make sense of the world, to discern patterns, to create a narrative, to fit the puzzle pieces together in ways that make sense while creating the minimum amount of cognitive dissonance so that we can move forward each day without having a complete nervous breakdown. And so it is that societies and cultures do the same thing as part of a kind of collective effort to find meaning. Be it in art, as we tried to find metaphorical meaning in the equivalent of a grain of sand, or in worship, or money, or success, or hierarchical achievement. The problem often comes when these patterns we internalize run headlong into reality. That's a small part of what we're going to talk about today with my guest Jeremy Lent. He's a writer and founder and president of Leology Institute. The Leology Institute integrates system science with ancient wisdom traditions. He's also the author of the novel Requiem of the Human Soul. Formerly, he was the founder, CEO, and chairman of a publicly traded internet company. He holds a BA in English from Cambridge University and an MBA from the University of Chicago. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeremy Lent here to talk about The Patterning Instinct, a Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it, it, it's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about what is, explain to our listeners what the patterning instinct is. Um, sure. And and I,
1: I'd just like to say, I think you did a beautiful job of introducing this, this concept right now as you were describing it. Um, and really the patterning instinct is an instinct unique, to humans, or at least I should say we humans have this instinct to a much, much greater degree than any other mammal. And it's the instinct to uh, basically put all of the kind of otherwise random chaotic kind of stuff that happens to us uh, through our eyes, ears, senses, etc., into some form of meaning. And, you know, we can see that it's an instinct and how it's so advanced in humans by just looking at how a newborn infant um, learns to speak. And she learns language, not because somebody tells her, this is what you're meant to do. But her instinct is to just try to make sense of all these kind of and sounds and actions and movements that happen around her. And as the months go by, she begins to go, oh, okay, I got it. I'll, I'll put this into this pattern of meaning, which is language. Um, and then, you know, we have this all through our lives. Like say it's our first day on the job and a new, um, new job. You walk into the office. Instantly, you're trying to figure out who's up, who's down, what's happening, how does this work, how does that work? And way back when, just as, as you were describing, when humans first basically evolved as humans and first developed language and tried to make sense of the world, they used that instinct to try to look at everything going on around in the cosmos and make some sort of pattern of meaning around it. Um, and that kind of instinct has formed really, it's the, it's the underlying structure for culture, uh, which has really led humans to all of the history we've had since then and has led to the structure of our present day.
0: One of the fascinating things about it, though, I mean, as we relate it to personal experience, is that two people or three people or four people could look at similar events and from that evolve different patterns, different ideas about what holds those things together.
1: Yes, you know, that is that is so true. And um, and what we find is... Um, Both that each person has their own unique assessment of something, and then but then you look at a deeper level. What's not so obvious, but it's something I kind of explore in the book, is how um, our culture creates certain frames of trying of finding meaning in things that are so deep and so uh, essentially become unconscious as we as as we grow up that we actually um, don't even see that they're there. Um, But those are the ways in which we really frame our meaning. And that is something that we do share with people from our own culture, but we actually don't necessarily have the same frames of meaning as people from another culture. And so quite what a lot of the book is about is to kind of um, investigate what are these kind of hidden frames of meaning, um, which it turns out come from root metaphors that we use to sort of make sense of the universe. And look at how different cultures have actually started from these different root metaphors mm-hmm. and have come to totally different patterns or frames of meaning, which have actually, it uh, turns out, driven the course of history.
0: What happens, though, when those frames run headlong against things evolving, be they culturally, technologically, socially, uh, that that are inconsistent with that frame? Yes, that that is... Uh, A key,
1: key question. And something that's so interesting is because of this patterning instinct, because of this way we have of wanting to take everything that happens to us and put it into the frame of meaning that we've already formed, humans have this amazing ability to actually ignore um, or interpret um, in any kind of way that they can to fit um, all of the events into that frame of meaning. So if things happen that don't fit in that frame of meaning, and um, we have this amazing ability to just even not even realize that they're there or um, kind of explain them away. Um, and it's only really when um, the preponderance of evidence becomes so strong and enough people begin to look at things in a new way of making sense of the world that you can have really like a, a, a transformation of meaning. So we saw something like that happen, for example, during the scientific revolution in the 17th century in Europe, when um, a new way of thinking began to sort of transform the way people made sense of the world. And, um, you know, I think it's really quite uh, credible that we're actually looking at something similar happening in today's world where the frames of meaning that ever since the scientific revolution, um, mainstream sort of thinking is used to make sense of the world. And um, to some degrees, are beginning to sort of come unravelled, and people are looking for other ways of making meaning and um, making meaning. But that's a it's very—it's a challenging process, and a lot of people and um, get yeah will really stick their heels in because it's very very uncomfortable to even consider giving up the frame of meaning that you, you know, that you have lived in maybe for decades.
0: Isn't that what leads to? And and historically, isn't it what has led to? Tremendous waves of tribalism and conflict. Uh, I think that is absolutely true. And, you know, in fact, really, honestly, we see this happening
1: right now mm-hmm. in terms of conflict in our current society, where um, we have, you know, this preponderance of evidence, for example, that, we, um, that our carbon emissions are causing climate change, which could potentially really threaten even you know, our continued civilization. And yet we have a group of people for whom um, that frame would have to undo some of their other um, ways in which they've structured uh, what what is meaningful to them in their lives. And they'll do anything in their power, as we've seen, unfortunately, in media um, and in politics, to um, just deny what is blatantly in front of them, just to avoid having to undo the whole structure of meaning that they've created that is being threatened
0: historically, as we look at this, have there been specific periods that we have gone through in which fundamental parts of, of meaning, fundamental parts of, of societal patterns have been threatened and have had to change dramatically?
1: Yes, there, there have been a few major transformations in history that we've seen like that. And um, one of those was maybe the most important that actually happened in human history was when um, we actually developed agriculture about 12,000 years ago. You know, for the vast bulk of human history, um, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, just um, nomadic and just kind of uh, developed in really sophisticated ways of just being with the natural world. And when agriculture developed, a whole different way of making meaning out of the universe came up. That's when a lot of the things that we take for granted now, ideas about property, hierarchy, um, sort of patriarchal thinking, um, and and inequalities and specializations, all these things uh, began only about 12,000 years ago, and that caused a complete transformation in the human experience. And, you know, probably the second most important transformation actually is what happened that I mentioned a little, little bit earlier when with the scientific revolution and the new way of thinking about humans relationships with the natural world and thinking in terms of conquest and domination and humans as being separate from the natural world, which kind of really took off in Europe. And then because of the um, European military um, uh, A sort of power and domination and exploitation of the rest of the world has since kind of forced its way into the mindset of you know virtually every every corner of of the globe in today's world, which is you know where the modern way of thinking, the mainstream dominant way of thinking, really comes from that uh, 17th century European roots.
0: And and isn't that really a function of being able to scientifically explain the world? Because if you can understand it, if you can explain it, if you can grasp it, there's the sense that that you can conquer it or change it. Yes, you know, in
1: a way, that is absolutely true. And it's also a little bit like a double-edged sword. And there's something I explore in some detail in my book, because what I... Began to uncover as I sort of as I did the research for this, was that the way of thinking um, that was really unique to Western thought. Actually, its seeds were all the way back in the ancient Greeks, but it came it really sort of flowered in uh, Europe in the 17th century. But this way of thinking um, both led to the amazing powerful, great achievements of scientific thought by looking at humans as separate from the world, looking at this notion of reason and logic and and applying that to understand the world and caused all these great and amazing uh, benefits that we all enjoy. And at the same time, it was this fascinating way in which by seeing humans as separate from nature, by seeing reason as being separate from emotion, and it developed this idea that it was um, not just okay, but it was actually the sort of human um, uh, drive. It was this kind of almost necessity to conquer nature and to exploit nature in every which way. And to really see nature as not being, having intrinsic value in itself, but just really being there as a resource for human domination and exploitation. And that mindset is what also led to things like the, um, the conquest of the new world by Europeans and the, you know, the terrible genocides that happened there. And the, the total disruption um, of so much of the indigenous cultures around the world. And has also led to these imbalances we're looking at today where the rates in which we're consuming the earth, consuming natural resources um, is totally inconsistent with a sort of a more stable future. So it's interesting that this, the, you look at the same mindset and it's given us these incredible benefits, but is also what is driving us towards this real kind of precarious time we're in right now. And that's a lot of what I explore in this book. How can we um, recognize the benefits of that mindset, but then how can we look at what other cultures can teach us about different ways of finding a more balanced relationship with nature?
0: How much of this has to do with, and I know you talk quite a lot about this, how much of it has to do with kind of the fundamentals of human nature and particularly as it relates to, to evolutionary biology being out of sync with the way science and other parts of, of the culture are developing?
1: Yeah, well, that's what is, what is so interesting. You know, if, um, most of us nowadays... Um, if you're asked, if we're asked about what is human nature, then um, we'll generally tend to say things like, "Well, it's human nature to be selfish, and that's what we fundamentally are." Um, you know, and even nature itself um, has a selfish gene, and the way evolution works is each gene basically controls um its different organisms to look out for itself. That's the way the world works, and that's why you know our our sort of. Um, modern neoliberal capitalist economy works so efficiently because everyone's just doing their own selfish thing and that's the way um, uh, things get to be optimized. And that I've discovered as I did the research once again is this myth that has been created over the last couple of hundred years, again emanating from Europe, and modern findings in evolutionary biology and cognitive anthropology that understand how humans actually evolved and how culture evolved show that that is completely um, incorrect. In fact, you know, what makes humans unique among um, most other mammals is our ability to um, actually see ourselves as part of community and to actually have these powerful drives of empathy, compassion, and sense of sharing and sh- what's called shared intentionality. Um, and in fact, as evolution evolved um, into the, all the sort of complex ways in which we see, we see it now, it wasn't driven um, just by genes replicating themselves, but also by organisms um, as kind of complex uh, sort of arrays of genes working with other organisms to optimize harmoniously within an ecosystem. So these are some of the findings that kind of, again, we're, we're talking about this paradigm shift, different ways of finding meaning. And the modern findings in science is showing that a lot of these um, mainstream ideas of selfish gene and, and selfish humans are just really misguided. Um, and by recognizing that, it really kind of empowers us to look at different ways of making meaning in the world and different ways of actually having our society work more, um, more effectively. Mm-hmm.
0: As you talk about cognitive science gives us a lot of insight into this, what do we also learn by looking at other cultures,
1: yes, you know that's where I really feel um, the the exploration in this book I feel can offer so much to us because our our dominant culture is now so widespread. We sort of think that our worldview is really the only one that is really relevant. But when we do look at other cultures, in particular, we see this very sophisticated. Um, way of making sense of the universe that really uh, developed in East Asia, which we can associate mostly with traditional Chinese culture, but a lot of other East Asian societies too. And there they saw humans in relation to the world in a very different way. They saw the, um, nature basically as almost like this kind of web of meaning, if you will. And humans as existing in resonance with this web. And they kind of recognize that anything anybody does has this kind of resonating um, interaction with everything else around them. So they developed a very different way of seeing what humans should do in the world rather than try to conquer or dominate it. They saw um, the most important thing really as being to actually harmonize with the world, to find ways to be in the world where you could sort of flourish rather than disrupt and cause imbalances. And, you know, while obviously, when we look at the flow of history and we see the domination of Western Europe over the rest of the world, um, it's easy to say, well, obviously, the Western way proved to be more powerful. Um, And to some extent, that is true. But I think at this point, when we're looking at the way that human power is causing these huge imbalances in the world, we can actually find that a real important inspiration in these ways of making meaning that uh, traditional Chinese culture had, almost leading towards this notion of a more ecological civilization, a civilization that sees humans as being integrally embedded in the natural world rather than just there to dominate and control it.
0: At what point, though, though do those patterns that we talked about earlier and the patterns that lead to to these particular tribal-based points of view, to what extent and at what point And after how many generations did those patterns become kind of hardwired into us?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a a really good question as to what is hardwired and what's not. And in a way, what is so interesting is that the human patterning instinct is really, um, is incredibly plastic, incredibly malleable. And what really happens is that as we and enter the first few years of our life, whatever culture we live in, essentially, almost literally hardwires um, its patterns of meaning into our brains. And I say that meaning almost literally, because uh, the way that neurons work when we, and the, the synapses in the brain work when we're very young, is there's tons and tons of synaptic connections. And the ones that get reinforced get to basically get stronger and stronger and the ones that don't get used get to be ignored and just die off. So we literally have our brains formed, almost sculpted, if you will, by our culture. So in our present day, for example, like imagine, you know, little kids, um, just as they grow up, they're watching TV and they're seeing these commercials and um, uh, teaching them to be consumers, essentially, you know, teaching them uh, to, uh, they, they, should, they should want certain cereals and their little kids and then they should want to buy this and, and their status should be like uh, however, it should, however our sort of consumer marketing mentality tells them. So by the time they get to be teenagers and start to really sort of try to find their own way in the world, they already have these really kind of almost hardwired um, sculpted uh, patterns of meaning that they formed in our society. But the reason I say almost hardwired is because, because of the incredible plasticity of the brain. To the extent that we, as we get older, get to recognize the patterns of meaning that ha- our culture has sort of imposed on us, we do have, to a very large degree, the ability to consciously reshape those patterns, which can oftentimes give us um, yeah, basically a much a better sense of fulfillment in our own lives and as a society, if we can reshape those patterns, it gives us a better, um, really, a better opportunity for a flourishing future.
0: Speaking of the future, bring this around to, to your conception of these two possible futures, given given the narratives that we have today—one technologically driven and one much more nature-driven.
1: Yes, you know, I think if we um, look at where our society is going right now, just based on the sort of current trajectories, um, we do see um, just this drastic, you know, dramatic changes happening through technology um, and through the increased way in which we're consuming the earth. So in fact, in the last chapter of my book, it's actually called Trajectories to Our Future. And I, I look at some of these, um, where these patterns can lead us. And there's one group of people who Um, with very good reason, are quite concerned that the rate at which we're consuming the Earth is so unsustainable that we really might be headed for a collapse of our civilization. And there are some very powerful arguments why that might be the case. And then there's other people driven more by focusing on what technology Uh, is accomplishing at such massive, massive speed, and who are really looking at this amazing opportunity for humans to even like genetically enhance ourselves and maybe even be neurally connected with the Internet. And one of the things that I see as a possibility is what I call a techno split, where the affluent minority who are now already getting wealthier and wealthier at the expense of the rest of humans around the world, like literally become genetically enhanced almost like uber humans, and the rest of our of of the human race is really left to kind of endure its own collapse while the affluent minority sort of goes in a completely different direction. And honestly I have some I raise real moral concerns about this. Like if we see ourselves primarily as um, as human beings, like connected as a family with other human beings, then, you know, it's, it's really a very terrifying prospect that um, some small group of people could essentially just sort of jettison the rest of humanity behind as they develop in their own sort of sense of what progress is. So there is this other way of looking at, at where we could head in our future, which is based on a sense of connection, a sense of our connection with other humans Um, our connection within all the different parts of ourselves and with the natural world, and really looking for ways in which we can use technology to live a more balanced and essentially harmonious um, relationship between humans and nature. I think these are moral choices and political choices that um, each of us, all of us are facing right now as we're looking at things like climate change, and really um, the extinction of species and the, the choices we have as to how we legislate where we go forward as a, a, as a race.
0: I guess one of the questions that arises from this that, that kind of brings us full circle here is the, to the extent that we see these patterns and, and adapt to these patterns that there's a, a kind of self-correcting nature that's built into the process.
1: Yes, you know, humans have this amazing way of um, adapting you know, to what we do. And, and what is what so fascinating is that we, we sort of self-correct and at the same time in history, as we perform these kind of acts of self-correction, we essentially create even um, further imbalances that then later generations get to um, you know, kind of experience and have to work with through themselves, so for example, you know as as humans did settle down and uh, developed agriculture, and um, as time went on, we got you know better technologies and ways to um, make uh, you know, make more produce out of what was around. But then what would keep happening is humans would kind of expand to sort of fill the space, if you will, um, and so every time we come up with a technological solution. To sort of capacity constraints, we then sort of use that solution to then create more um, capacity issues, and at, at a future at, at a future point, there's actually a name for that. It's called um Jeevan's paradox, named after a 19th century economist who got to notice that that every time a technological solution came to a problem, we sort of took it to its very limits and then created more um, more uh, sort of issues around that. So that's something that's in our human dynamic, if you will. And I think it's something that by becoming aware of, we, again, can um, have the opportunity to kind of shift by, by trying to accommodate that dynamic within our own society.
0: It's kind of the human version of Moore's Law.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, a nice way of, of looking at it. Um, and yet the, the, the point is, and that's one thing that I really sort of come to in the book as we start to look at how our patterns of meaning can guide our future, that as humans, because we do have this patterning instinct and we have this ability to recognize what we're doing to the world, we also have the ability to consciously shift our direction, that so we're not subject to some sort of inevitable law of nature. The only law of nature that really is there is we have this instinct to make meaning and, and we can use that instinct to... Lead the future of our species and and the earth we live on in the direction that, as a society, we 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 kind of choose. So, in a sense, every one of us has, if even a responsibility, if you will, once we become aware of this, to recognize that our actions will actually drive and collectively drive our future.
0: Jeremy Lent, his book is *The Patterning Instinct: A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning*. Jeremy, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you.